Welcome to the Balbury. Working, parenting, playing, voting, advocating, and creating as women. I want our legacy more than anything else is just be a place where people can come over and over again and say, that happened to me. I'm so glad I read this. I'm your host, Suki Wessling, and I'm a woman talking on a podcast called The Babblery. Mental Floss tells me that babble has been used to mean to talk excessively since the mid-13th century at least. I also learned that a woman who talks too much is a bablatrice. I gotta use that at some point. There are lots of negative words for women who tell stories. Sure, we have some flattering ones, but a woman who tells stories about women, herself or others, is often described as a gossip, a magpie, or the Yiddish yenta. These days, women who talk about their problems and their challenges may get accused of TMI or oversharing. In the past, women's storytelling developed camaraderie, exchanged cultural understanding, and served as a way to pass information in a world where they were excluded from positions of power. But any woman can tell you that although women today can occupy traditionally masculine positions of power, there is still deep power in the feminine tradition of storytelling. My guest today, and the many voices she represents, is no gossip, not at all a yenta, Yet she spreads stories about women, and she feels deeply about her role as a woman who provides a place for women to be heard. Well, my name is Julia Nussbaum, and I am the founder and editor-in-chief of Her Story Literary Magazine and the founder of Her Story's writing community, The Babes Who Write. So, you know, you say on your website, um, <laughs> you, you write, you might think a background in theology would make her an odd candidate for creating a feminist storytelling community, but we beg to differ. So, so my first question is, I'm begging you to differ. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. I, the way I got started in her story was so backwards. I didn't even know what a literary magazine was. I had been Working with women who had survived trafficking, I was working at a nonprofit in Nashville, and I had been doing a writing class with them, and we had been writing their stories, and I was just like, oh my gosh, I think that a lot of women have stories to tell. I'd love to start a blog, and so I started this little blog and like begged people to write for me, and then sort of it sort of like snowballed from there into what it is today. But the work in the nonprofit, uh, which was called Thistle Farms, I was doing it as part of my thesis for my graduate degree in theology at Vanderbilt Divinity. And I was really focused on the way narrative shapes our lives and the ways our narratives shape our lives. Um, I was really interested in that in like a faith-based way. And so I just found myself coming to storytelling like over and over again in my theology degree and in my like work in theology and my work in like faith-based programs. I was always looking for like the heart of the story in something uh, because I think story is sort of what shapes our faith lives too. And 
so then I found it. I created the blog, Her Story, which is why our URL still says BLG at the end, because it used to be a blog and I have not mustered the energy to go through changing our URL. So it still it still holds <laughs> that little piece at the end. So I think that the way that I beg to differ is that I just think I came to story through my work in faith-based with faith-based groups. Um, and I've always been a writer all my life. I've been a writer, but um, I just, I've stumbled into all of this so backward. And it's funny because I went to, I went to Vanderbilt specifically saying, Oh, I'm going to like, I want to work in faith-based nonprofit. I want to maybe start a nonprofit at some point. And at this point, I, uh, I'm thinking about turning her story into a nonprofit. So I keep saying like, Oh, I guess I, I guess I made it in what I wanted to do. I love what you said about going backward into it because that's, that's a theme in the lives of so many women I know that, um, that they may have a plan or not have a plan and they'll end up doing something because it was sort of, you know, in their, I guess, in their peripheral vision. And they, instead of saying, you know, you're 16 years old, okay, here's the career tra- trajectory and here's the the college program I need to go to, they may be focused on something, but often end up backing into something else. Do you notice that in your stories that you collect? Yes, I do. I notice that in stories that I collect. I notice that in my own life. I back into everything in my own life. Uh, from the time I was a child until, you know, I, I'm 34 and have a kid and I graduated from Vanderbilt 10 years ago and now I'm doing a second master's degree. I'm getting my MFA and keep th- thinking like, why didn't I do this sooner? But also, this is the perfect time for me to be doing this. And just again, like backing into this of like, oh, this is what I want to do. This is what I figured out. And I see that in stories that we get from her story too, just like people whose lives didn't quite go as planned or they had thought one thing was going to happen, but then it became another thing. And I think there's room. It's fun to leave room for those surprises too, because I think that is what gets us where we want to be and where we're happy with rather than just like, I've definitely along the way worked uh, many a full-time like desk job as I've been doing her story. And I just felt, I don't want to say soul sucked, but my soul was sucked. Um, I'm (laughs) not good. I've never been good at being being traditional. I'm not, I realized right away, like sitting in an office all day is not good for me. Uh, busy work that I do to fill my time in the office when I could be doing something else is not good for me. Um, and I really just have like weaseled my way into like, not weaseled, but like every time <laughs> I end up in an office, I'm like, Oh, I hate this. I forgot that I hated this. I need out right now. Um, and so I've just worked, I've worked really hard to make, to make her story work, to make freelancing work. I do some teaching. And so um, just to be able to create the kind of the career that I want to, um, 
So I see those, I see those things in other people too, where it's just like, oh, this is not what I wanted. And so I went and did X, Y, Z instead, or I tried this and it, I, it, it, by this weird windy path, I ended up exactly where I was supposed to be. Did you come to feminism because of the work you were doing or did you, a lot of people have trouble reconciling feminism and faith because of the really um, in, firmly entrenched misogyny in many faiths. What, how did you come about that and how did you, how did you deal with that in your life? So it's interesting because I, I didn't think I knew what the word feminism was probably until I went to college. And I think that's, that's how it is for a lot of people or a lot of, a lot of people before the internet, really. Um, so I, I graduated <laughs> yeah. from high school in 2007. And so that's just when like, you know, social media and everything was being born, coming about. I don't know. But, and I also grew up in a very small town. I grew up on a farm. I read a lot and I knew a lot of things, but I didn't really know the word feminism, though, I think that I always was one. Like, I think once I learned, once I learned what feminism was, I was like, oh yeah, I'm that. But I grew up in the Lutheran church in the ELCA and I'm still uh, ELCA Lutheran. And I think a lot of people get the church confused sometimes. Mainline Protestantism is pretty liberal. People often just think you're Christian and they think like, very conservative evangelicals. And that is not the case. ELCA Lutherans are quite liberal. There are definitely other sects, I guess, of Lutheranism that aren't as liberal. You know, the Lutherans ordain queer folks, sort of the Episcopalians, sort of the Presbyterians. So the church that I grew up in myself never like, and they weren't like outspokenly liberal, but there also weren't a lot of like conservative teachings. They just sort of were like old Midwestern Lutherans. And that has its own its own connotation. And then I went to college at a Lutheran college in Illinois. And it was a very small school, but again, very liberal. And I always sort of, I thought for a long time that I wanted to be a pastor. And so I studied religion and history in college. Um, partly because those were my two favorite things. History is story. And so I was like, oh, I was right about write about people all the time. And religion, I think I was just so curious about it. And I had so many questions. <laughs> I just started hearing about feminism first, first in college, but then like really in divinity school is like where I really firmed up my feminism, which is such a funny thing to say, like, oh, I became a feminist in seminary, but I really did. I took feminist theological ethics. I, um, took queer theology. In fact, Vanderbilt is one of the leading like queer theology divinity schools in the country. I think we might be the leading. I just was entrenched in all of this rhetoric and uh, Vanderbilt's a big social justice school. And so they were really pushing for social justice, uh, feminism, racial justice. Uh, it was a, and I was just sort of steeped in it at all times. And we were always talking about it and I was always bringing it back to that. And um, my faith sort of just went hand in hand with those two things. I don't see, I don't think you can be a Christian without being a feminist. And I don't think you can be a Christian without being a, uh, 
without being anti-racist. Like, I just don't think it works. Why don't you give a specific example of something in the Bible that perhaps more, more conservative Christians might read differently than you do because of your feminism? One of my favorite things about the Easter story and Christ rising from the grave is that for a moment in time, it was only women who knew about the risen Christ because it was women who went to the tomb first and opened up the tomb. And so there was a moment before they went and told the disciples that the church on earth was only women. And every time I think about that and every time I think about those women holding that sacred moment in their hands and understanding like what had happened and being given that gift, I think about how how important women are to the church and how important women are to, I guess, to the, its very foundation. Women are the ones who first spread that good news. And again, like it was a woman who, who birthed Christ, who brought us this good news. And like, you can't do it without women. And it, like, he didn't grow out of the ground. <laughs> um, and I just, it, it just, reinforces for me over and over again that like women are this foundation of of the church. And women are the foundation now of your yes. work. <laughs> yeah. We're speaking with Julia Nussbaum, founder of Herstory, a feminist storytelling community. So tell me about how you first started hearing women's stories and what you felt was important about them. Well I've always been interested in stories. And particularly women's stories, I always gravitated toward books with women main characters. Like this has been a theme throughout my life. When I was talking about working in nonprofits, I always gravitated toward female-based nonprofits. So I was often in places where I was working with survivors of some sort of abuse. Or like I said, at Thistle Farms, I was surrounded by women who had survived trafficking. And as part of my internship, one day my intern supervisor said, okay, you have to do something where you get involved with the women like one-on-one. And I was like, I, what, what do you want me to do? Because um, at the time I'd been like working in the marketing department doing some stuff. And she was like, I don't know, you could maybe teach a yoga class. <laughs> I don't know anything about yoga. So the only thing I could think of, I was like, well, we could do a creative writing class. I could do that. I I like to write stories sometimes. And she was like, oh, okay, that'd be great. That'd be great. And so I marched in there like naive little me and sat down in their living room. I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And I've made you like I made them all journals. I said, this is what we're going to do. I have these writing prompts for you. And I was so naive. None of these like most of these women hadn't gone to school past like the sixth grade. So mm-hmm. it, it there wasn't a lot of like, concept for performing stories. They just, they had never done it. I suddenly just was like, oh, I am in over my head right here. And so the prompts quickly like did not work. (laughs) They just weren't a thing that we were going to (laughs) do. And a lot of them wanted to write poetry. And I think poetry is really helpful in these instances because it's something short that can be grasped onto. And poetry doesn't really have there aren't any rules really. So you can like, you can just write something and call it a poem. And so that's a lot of what we did was writing poetry. And they would often just write poetry about what had happened to them, what they had been through, what their healing journey was like. Uh, Some of them would write poetry about 
their childhoods. Some of them would write poetry about life on the street. And then we sort of got into a lot of them wanted to tell their own story, just sort of get it out, put it on paper. Uh, There's something about committing what has happened to you into words that sort of unscrambles it in your brain and gives it, I don't know, gives it some legitimacy because it's out there on the paper and you can see it and it's like you have thrown it up out of where it's been like swirling around inside of you and it grounds you a little bit. And so we did a lot of writing down of their stories and what had happened to them or just like how they were healing, how they were feeling about healing, how they were feeling about being in the program that Thistle Farms offered. I would often be sitting there with them and I would write about myself because there were long periods of silence where people were writing. So I would write about myself too. And I just learned a lot of things about my own childhood. I had I had a lot of learning disabilities when I was young. I'm very dyslexic. I sort of sorted things out in my own mind. And it just felt very liberating to tell my own story. And this could be this could work for anyone. I could have just said, well, we're gonna, we're gonna do, I'm gonna start a blog and anyone can tell their story. But I think the fact that I had been specifically working with women at the time and the fact that I've always sort of gravitated toward working with women made me made me create her story in the vein that I did. And then, of course, I just sort of, you know, I thought I was being so clever at the time. I was like, oh, her story, it's a play on history. And of course, like millions of other people have done that. But I didn't know at the time. I was like, oh, I'm so funny. What are some of your favorite stories that people have submitted? Ooh, there's one story that always sticks with me. I think it's from like 2019, maybe. It's called My Grandmother's God. The young woman who wrote it just had like this beautiful way with words that I can't even describe. My earliest memories of my grandmother are fearful. It pains me to write that sentence as an empathetic adult who longs to protect her family. It pains me to write that sentence as a child who longs for acceptance from her forebears. But it is a fact. I was afraid. I loved her opium perfume, her gum chewing, which my mother could not fathom. Her house, which overflowed with treasures. The copper teapot full of Legos. The menagerie of napkin rings, which I delighted in choosing individually for each place at the table. The honeysuckle pouring over the back garden fence in Laverne. And yet. We had another one called Losing Rosebud. The way that the woman wrote it, she was talking directly to the baby that she had miscarried. And it was sort of a conversation with her and that baby. And that really stuck with me. She was dead before I met her, so I'm not sure how much of our meeting I should believe. I was at the deli counter at Kroger when she found me, far away at the crossroads of Main and Court Streets in Luray, Virginia, at what used to be the second stoplight in town. She introduced herself as Rosebud, which should have been my first clue, and she winked as she said, But you can call me Rosie. And I knew right then and there that I'd believe anything she had to say. You've been listening to an interview with writer Julia Nussbaum, who founded Herstory, a feminist storytelling community. When we return, we'll explore what happens when women, most of them not professional writers, have a space to tell their stories to other women. Why have a space for just women's voices? 
what counts as a woman's voice? And can any space be safe in the age of the internet? You've been listening to The Balbury. We'll be back after this short break. You are listening to The Balbury. Welcome back. We now return to our conversation with Julia Nussbaum, founder and editor-in-chief of Her Story, a feminist storytelling community. There aren't a lot of spaces on the internet for mother-centered stories that are not just about parenting, like parenting advice, you know? There's not a lot of spaces where you can just write a story about being a mother, whatever that means. I wanted to ask you about motherhood and how it's different from parenting. So you said that that most of what you read about motherhood on the internet is actually about parenting. What's the difference? I find that it's it's often like parenting advice, like, oh, this is what I did for my child when they were going through this, or this is what happened to me and my child when we were going through this. And it's often like about mother and child. And I, no matter if I'm with my child or not, I am always a mother. I never really thought that I was going to be a mother. Um, I have PCOS. And so I was sort of told like, you you probably won't have a baby. Um, and so my baby was not sort of a surprise. He was definitely a surprise. Um, and I just, I'm still like profoundly astonished that my body can like build a human and that he's out there in the world, just like living and breathing. And that I made his brain and nose and eyeballs and toes. <laughs> I always think about that. There's not a lot of space that I've seen where I can just write about the aspect of motherhood where it's like the experience that I went through to bring it back to like my theological background. The end of my pregnancy sort of culminated with Lent in 2020. I often think so on Maundy Thursday and during Holy Week is when we get the Last Supper and Christ saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And I had a very hard pregnancy. It was I was high risk. I had gestational diabetes. I had a lot of a lot of other traumatic things happened to our family during my pregnancy and I I just often was like this is my body broken for you. Like you have broken my body. This is my blood shed for you and I kept bringing it back to that and I will tell people now it, it was like giving birth to my heart. Like it is, he is out there in the world, but like tethered to me in the same, in the same vein. Um, And he'll always be tethered to me. And it's so weird to just like send your heart out the door in the mornings and say like, okay, have a good day. (laughs) Other part of me. Heart Mom by June Blue Spruce. 
We talked with his second grade teacher, Mady, a woman with shoulder-length brown hair and an imperturbable manner. By some wild turn of the universe, she was not only a lesbian whom we had known for years, she was THE lesbian who had found his sperm donor for us. Without her, this particular child would not be here asking these challenging questions. Mady had already been thinking about this problem. She too was a mother to one biological and one non-biological son. Her classroom was full of kids raised by women other than their birth mothers. Grandmothers, foster mothers, lesbian other mothers, what to call them? Her solution was brilliant. We can call birth moms just that, birth moms. We'll call any other woman raising a child their heart mom. Anyone can have a birth mom, a heart mom, or both. What do you think? It's perfect, we responded, relieved. Each woman had a clear role with honor and respect. No one was left out. No child had to feel their mother was not a real mother. When kids asked McKaylin who Martha was, he could say, she's my heart mom. And because of the norm Mady set, the language she provided, the story about the family she made room for, they knew what he meant. Some of them had a heart mom too. We are a space that just says like, tell us about the experience of being a woman identifying person, whatever that means to you. And a lot of times that means birthing a human or taking care of a human or whatever. And that has a big impact on your personal life and your own identity. And I think that mothers sometimes lose their identity in their child. And I want them to be able to like write about themselves as mothers without it being child focused. Something that occurs to me when I listen to you is that when we focus on women, we actually are holding two different things at the same time that are somewhat contradictory. A lot of people now are really afraid of excluding anyone mm -hmm. because of the understanding that it, the, the hurt and the the pain and the literal, you know, keep holding back of people that happen because of exclusion. And so there's this, this wanting to welcome everyone. And so I heard that when you said, you know, woman identifying people, or for example, you know, if you did a, if someone submitted, I'm doing a, a podcast on transmasculine pregnancy, and if someone submitted to your motherhood saying, I'm not a mother, but I birthed the baby, that could be inclusive, yes. right? But on the other hand, by focusing on women, we're being exclusive. And why do that? Why why shut men out of men and male identifying people who have not had female identified experiences yeah. out of this conversation? We have opened it up to really um, all of those experiences. And so often, sometimes it's not a specifically female experience, but it is an experience outside of the cisgendered male body. And the reason I chose to do that and how I explain it to people is that we have heard enough from cisgendered males and there are enough places on the internet for them to submit their writing that it doesn't need it doesn't need, we don't, we don't hold space for it here. We hold space for the stories that don't get heard and don't get told the stories that got left out of the history books. This is something that I thought about 
studying history and, you know, having to take specific classes that were called like women in Europe, women in America. And I never had to take like white men in Europe. Um, it was just, that's just, that they were the default. They've always been the default. And so at her story, everyone else is the default. I have found a lot of folks feel safer submitting their stories to us and letting them live there when they are harder stories to share, whether they are stories about abortion. We have had themes specifically focused on abortion, stories that they don't think that really would feel safe anywhere else. That said, I don't necessarily believe in safe spaces because you can't really make any space safe. So I call, I tend to call her story a brave space. It's a space where we can we can be brave to share our stories where we're welcome to share our stories. Um, and I try to make it as safe as possible. But we also have the comments on in our stories. And I can't always, I mean, if it got too out of control, we can turn them off. But I can't necessarily control what people are going to say. We've never had anything too terrible. One year, we did do a piece on female faith leaders. And a woman wrote about being ordained, I think, in the Methodist church. And we did have a we did, we did have a guy like find our website and then like cite all the biblical reasons why women shouldn't be pastors like in the comments. So I asked her first if she wanted me to take the comments down and she said, no, just leave them there because I think that it, it it shows why my story is needed. And I kind of started saying after that, well, I can't, I can't guarantee safeness here because I can't guarantee what other people are going to do. Mm-hmm. I like that, that brave space because I'm a teacher and I don't feel comfortable telling my students that it's a safe space because that means you don't take risks. Yeah. I think like that little bit of fear makes makes us brave. And I, I want it to be a space where we're, you know, it, it's scary to share your abortion story, especially now. It's scary to to say I had an abortion because I don't even know the word that I the word that I want to use here. It's such a hot button issue that doesn't really get to what I want to say, but it's just it's it's brave to put to put your name out there and to say I you know whatever my name is had an abortion. I did this. I went here. I asked for this. Um and there's still a lot of like shame put on to abortion and it is what it is. You know, I wish we could take that stigma away and I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. But I think that it's very brave to to put your story into writing and to put it out there and to show it to people who maybe in your life are going to judge you for it. Um, and we always tell people that we will publish their stories anonymously if they so choose. Um, I never have a problem with that. I know that it getting your story in writing, like I said earlier, is cathartic, yes, and it unscrambles some things in your head, but sometimes you're not necessarily ready to share it with everyone in your life. From Great Expectations by Anonymous I donned an orange safety vest and sparkling new hard hat fresh from its cellophane wrapper and trudged up the wide, steep incline under a blazing California sky. My gait was off-kilter, too much weight in the front of my steel-toed boots. The Sony camera slung across my body hit my back every step I took, like a stranger trying to get my attention. 
I shoved my small notebook and pen into my jeans back pocket and swung the camera around, securing it with my right hand. Up and up the bridge deck I climbed, all the way to the end, halfway across the San Francisco Bay. On the edge looking down, I saw a huge concrete segment weighing a million pounds, ready to be hoisted into place. All potential, I thought. I was an improbable candidate for a career in construction. I didn't know what civil infrastructure was when I accepted the job at one of the largest bridge builders in the country. I was raised by my mother and attended an all-girls high school, which meant my formative years had been short on men. My teachers gave no indication that women couldn't do anything men could. Achieving equality was not explicitly stated. There was simply no mention of men or boys in our quest for greatness. We're speaking with Julia Nussbaum, founder of Herstory, a feminist storytelling community. Let's move to the business side. You you started this blog and you went backwards into it yeah. as women often do, <laughs> not planning anything. And here you are with a business. Describe where your business is now and um, and maybe what you hope to achieve with it. Yeah. It um so as of right now, we have a thriving literary magazine and we pay our writers, which is something that I always wanted to do. It's not a ton. We pay $20 a story, so but it's something. Um and it is something from the very beginning I said I want to pay writers because for one, I think writing is really hard work and it's a lot of emotional labor. And I think people who don't write are just like, oh, you toss that out there in a day. And like, that was so nice. And they don't know like how much work goes into it and how many drafts and how many times you meet with your writing group or you send it to someone and you say, does this sound good? And you like really agonize over it before you send it in. Um, and so $20 is definitely not enough, but it's where it's where we're at in the world right now. And so I said at the very beginning, I want to be able to pay my writers. And then I said, I want to be able to pay myself because I want to be able to sustain myself with her story because I think that we, I really thought from the beginning that we could be something really great. And at first I thought, oh, maybe we could turn it into a nonprofit. And I started sort of looking into that. And I just, I, first of all, I have like no business background. So the they started telling me all the paperwork. This was when I lived in Tennessee of what I would need to do. And I backed out of that really quick because I just did not, I did not feel that I was prepared for that. Um, and then I kept, you know, I worked my full-time job. And then I, in 2018, maybe, after I had taken a couple writing courses, I thought to myself, like, we could do, we could do critique groups online. Um, at the time, I was working remotely for the Methodist Church, and we used Zoom all the time for our meetings. And this was in 2018, before anyone knew what Zoom was. And I just thought, oh, we could use we could use Zoom and we could just have these meetings online and I could I could do critique groups from all over the place. And so I 
I wrote down what I wanted and what I wanted it to look like. And then I sort of left it for a little while because I need to let things like marinate uh, before I can, before I can commit to them. And so then I decided that I, I would offer them and just see what happened. And I think the first critique group, maybe we had three people sign up and then like halfway through one person had to drop out because something happened. So it ended with like just two people and me, which was great for them because they got to like, just be critiqued for 90 minutes every, every week. And they really got an in-depth session. Um, and, you know, then we did, I offered it again and we had a few more and a few more and we finally got a full group. And so a full group for our critique groups is six people. Um, and then the pandemic hit and everyone started doing everything online and we, everyone figured out what zoom was <laughs> And suddenly it was so easy to tell people like, hey, you can't meet with your writing group in person. Come meet with us instead. We meet for six weeks. Every like every session meets for six weeks. You get a full critique, a line edit from me, and you know, critiques from from your group members as well. So it was just like a regular writing workshop that met every week. Um, and our sessions started filling up. And so I partly like thank the, I thank the pandemic for helping us out in, in that regard. From The Old Porch by Diane Blumberg. I've driven by our old farm a few times, slowed down and leaned out the window to review what used to be. But yesterday was different. I pulled in, waited. My childhood home is now a truck depot. A heavy petroleum stench has replaced the spicy intoxication of peonies long gone. Uneven grease-stained gravel has snuffed out the acre of lush grass in the front yard where my bare feet linked me to the earth. Our house, the one my dad built, seems to be the office. I didn't need to go inside, didn't even want to see what the living room had become or how disrupted Mama's tidy kitchen was. I turned into the driveway on the eve of my 70th birthday to visit the old porch in the backyard a five-by-five-foot concrete respite where problems were solved just by sitting there. For a little while, I wanted to be a kid again. Out of the car, I started toward the front door. It seemed like I needed permission to wander to the backyard. I looked for a face in the window to scare me away. No one was there. Still, my courage faded. Childhood memories came forward and it felt as if someone was telling me to sit down and not ask any questions. You've been listening to The Balbury. We'll be back after this short break. You are listening to The Balbury. I'm speaking with Julia Nussbaum, founder of Herstory, 
a feminist storytelling community. I checked out the winners of Herstory's 2023 Eunice Williams Nonfiction Prize to get the flavor of what the journal is publishing now. A strong theme runs through the work of women writing from the one thing we can't escape, our bodies. From E.A. Midnight's Hospital Gown. After a week, I drive my mom to the airport. The drive is long and I let the radio play in undertones as we cruise down the highway. We talk about anything but the surgery and you. She reaches out in random moments and places her hand on my thigh or my arm. I park the car and go in with her to help her check her bags. It is the least I can do. At security, she tells me that I will be okay and to call her if I need anything. I need to tell her about you. I need to tell her that I thought you were going to help me escape the loneliness of being in my body. I need to tell her that you don't. You only make it worse. I need to explain to her that I made a mistake. I need her to help me find an escape. But I don't know how to say any of this, so I just thank her and tell her I will miss her. From The Loneliest Road in America by Michelle Polizzi I'm an eager moon circling his red-hot planet, trapped in an orbit where our paths can't cross. This kind of loneliness is familiar. When the person whose attention you seek can't stand to be inside their own body, you're left with nothing but a vessel, someone incapable of connection. From Skin in the Game by Nina Lichtenstein What are the life marks on our skin if not what bears witness to our past? The white scar on a woman's knee that reminds her of a childhood fall off her bike, the blue tattoo on a sailor's arm that tells the tale of his ports of call, the faded numbers on the Holocaust survivor's forearm that whisper, you will never forget. When I told my dear childhood friend Anne I was writing about my stretch marks, she said, I love and strut my huge scar from my C-section. I'm proud of it. Thanks to her positive and body positive attitude, the marks on our skin suddenly become medals of achievement, these scars from the ordinary life battles we have survived. Our bodies, our skin, our storybooks, wars and victories, sorrows and joys, all inscribed there and connecting us to our memories to our stories, and to ourselves. Here's Julia talking about another step she took to make sure that her story would be a self-sustaining venture. I had been, in my life in nonprofit, I had been an event planner, which again, I fell into that accidentally too, but I'm very good at planning events. And so I thought, well, we could do like a Zoom co- writers conference. I've planned many a conference. I used like I would do um, large scale youth conferences, and so I said, okay, we'll just make them. We'll make it smaller, and we'll make it geared toward writers instead of instead of youth. And so I planned our first com- writing conference for January of 2021, I think. And I don't know. We had 40 or 50 people at the conference. And that's what we've gotten at all of our conferences. Um, And we did breakout sessions with the breakout rooms on Zoom. And with that session, we also launched our membership group. Our our membership group is called the Babes Who Write. We have workshops that we can, we can, uh, we give them that are just for the babes. So they're free for them. And then they have reduced rates to all of the other workshops that we offer. Um, They have reduced rates to the critique groups. 
we have special, like a huge master list of literary magazines that they can look at to submit to. We have different writing prompts every month. We have um, open mics. Uh, I always say once a quarter. So like four times a year, we have open mics. And anyone in the Babes Who Write can come, read their work. Uh, they can come and listen. Again, it's all online because we have you know members in Australia, members in the US and Canada. So we're all over the place. We also offer editorial services. So that's our business, our business end of it. Um, and my goal with that, especially with places like Catapult shuttering, is to be able to offer a space online where writers can take affordable classes from well, not just well-known writers, but writers who really know their stuff and know how to teach. Some of the best ways that I have learned to write is just by sitting in an um, an online workshop and gleaning those pieces of knowledge and talking about plot and structure and causality in both fiction and nonfiction. And I think for me, my writing has really gained something from online workshops being available. Uh, I can't, I don't have the money to travel to different places to do conferences, but I do have, you know, the $75, $100, whatever it costs to do like an all day conference where I get to meet with agents and I get to talk about the business of publishing. But then I also get to talk about writing about the body or writing about um, specificity in our fiction or something like that. So I, those are the kind of things that I want us to offer and that we are starting to offer more. And um, I want stuff to be affordable because uh, I know myself, even having worked full-time jobs that I couldn't always just afford to, you know, throw away $300, $400 on a writing class. It just, it wouldn't yeah. work for me. From Teacher, One Who Loves by Wendy Kenner. 180 school days, which means there were 185 non-school days to think about and prepare for those 180 school days. And I filled each of those 365 days because teaching wasn't just a job, it was an honor. At the beginning of the school year, when I reviewed lineup procedures and pointed out the locations for the trash cans, Important to know, just in case someone vomits in class, the trash can is the goal. I always told my students the same thing. My number one job is to keep you healthy and safe. Isn't your number one job to teach us? A child would always ask. Nope. Teaching is my number two job. My number one job is to keep you healthy and safe, I said. Healthy and safe didn't just apply to their bodies. I meant it as a broad, all-encompassing type of healthy and safe. Safe to share their opinions. Safe to venture a guess. Safe to talk about their favorite song. Safe to tell me about hard things happening at home. Her story is thriving as a literary journal because of the business decisions, but founder Julia Nussbaum says it all comes back to the writing. I think it's still hard to get just women's stories and I sometimes I forget that because I'm so steeped in like I'm always reading women's stories and so sometimes I forget that there are even like men publishing things but that is not that is not everyone's uh that's not everyone's 
story. And I think that it's important for women to ha- to still have a space and to still have somewhere where it's only their voices being heard. Because even though we, you know, we talk about how we're changing, you know, we're, we're, a lot of talk these days is about rewriting history books or rewriting history or telling history from uh, the side of the oppressed rather than the oppressor. I still, the majority of what's being taught in school is still the history that was the history of the oppressor, you know, history. I always say history is history is told by the oppressor, not the oppressed. And so um, I, I still think it's important to have our voices out there and still have a, a single space for them because in, and in the publishing industry too, the tide is sort of changing. I mean, there's a lot of, well, but even now we'll call it like women's lit. And I don't necessarily understand why it's called women's lit. Like why, why do we have to have our own section? Why can't we just be literature? Um, and, or like women's, cause it covers women's issues. And I, I don't think that's mm-hmm. fair because women's But issues- on the other hand, <laughs> just to, to break in here, yeah. on the other hand, you are doing that. I know. You are creating a space for women. I know. So it's it is an interesting conflict. That I, I I agree with you. There's there was actually a really excellent piece in the New York Times about why why were these particular authors considered women's lit authors yeah. rather than just authors because they're the the books they were writing should appeal to everyone. But on the other hand, putting them in that that ghettoized space lets women know where to seek them. That's true. That's true. It does let women know where to seek them. There's something about like specifically, I think for me, it's like the way that they get marketed and they get, it. it becomes like, it sort of goes into that territory of like chick lit. And then I get it. We all think it's kind of like fluffy and doesn't really mean anything. And I guess, you know, it's you're, it's true because I, I have created a space where women are publishing. But um, I the classes that we offer and what we teach, I would hope that they could then get published anywhere, I suppose. Um, and I suppose our, our space, like our literary magazine, again, it's covering like an issue. It's, it's covering issues that I just don't think get covered anywhere else. Um, you know, I don't see, I, I said, I don't see a lot of places like taking stories about motherhood that don't involve the child, but I also don't see a lot of places taking stories about abortion. I don't see a lot of places taking stories about miscarriages um, or the messier sides of women's bodies. Um, And so I guess my hope is that more than just women read our magazine, though I don't, I don't know how true that is. (laughs) I've never really, I've never, uh, done any kind of survey of our readers but I would I would assume that most of them are women or folks who uh, identify with the female experience in some way um so yeah 
I'm sort of my own, I'm my own oxymoron (laughs) because I, I really want, I really want like literature to just be literature and to let it all. I don't, I don't really know. There's no, like, I suppose there are books out there that we could say were like men's lit, but no one's marketing it as that. And I, I think that's where it gets me where I'm just like, where are all the, why, why can't we like, I don't know, why aren't all the Dan Brown books marketed as like men's lit or something? You know, I go through different days where I'm like, oh, I hope her story becomes something huge. And other times I'm like, it's falling into the ground and no one will care about us ever, um, depending on the day and what I'm doing. But I hope that her story perseveres, even if, you know, I leave and someone else takes it over, that we keep adding stories generation after generation, even if it just, you know, even if in the end, all the classes, the retreats, whatever we're doing doesn't work out, I want the magazine to stay because at the heart of it, I think stories are what makes life. And from the beginning, I have said, the thing I want from her story is for other women, women identifying folks to read it and say, I have felt that way too. That happened to me. I didn't know anyone else felt that. I didn't know anyone else had that same experience. That bravery to be able to write your story because my goal is to have the stories told more than just say like, oh, isn't this writing great? Isn't this writing amazing? But I also take a lot of pride in knowing that often her story is the first place that people get published and they felt brave enough to send their new piece of writing out into the world and to us. From The Skirt by Maureen O'Leary. Dear Anne, this letter is a little late. Fifty years is a sizable chunk of time, but I wanted to tell you that you can stop searching for that lovely brown linen skirt you left behind after a week's visit with me when we were young girls on the brink of life. I hope you have not spent too many of the decades between the summer and this one rifling through closets, calling various hotels, reaching out to friends to whom you might have lent it. If you have, then stop. No good will come of it. Certainly no skirt. I have never told anyone, but I kept that skirt of yours. The reasons are as complicated as our relationship, though that seemed simple enough to us as kids. We clicked immediately that first afternoon we spent together working on our elementary geography project. We were, somewhat inexplicably, assigned Guatemala. I loved everything about you, and since we spent every moment of our free time together, you must have loved a lot about me as well. I think sometimes personal essays are the hardest thing to write because we have to dig into deep, dark parts of ourselves. And sometimes we're writing about really traumatic issues that are hard to relive. And we have to go really close to them again to make the writing really work. I see that in writers that I work with who are writing about traumatic issues. And I will say to them, you know, if you can, if you feel like you can go a little closer, 
Tell me how it felt to be there. Tell me what your body was doing, what your internal sensations were like. And so to really make our writing visceral and to make it compelling for others to read, we have to jump back into that moment. And sometimes that really hurts. And so I want our legacy more than anything else is just be a place where people can come over and over again and say, that happened to me. I'm so glad I read this. I'm so glad someone else felt the same way. Or I, I'm going to tell my abortion story. I'm going to tell my Me Too story. I'm going to finally talk about my abusive marriage or something like that. Because those stories are hard to tell, but I think they're also important to tell because it may help someone else feel like they can tell their story. And it sets off a chain reaction until we're all telling these stories and hopefully stopping some of these terrible things from happening. Thanks to Julia Nussbaum of Her Story for sharing her time and passion for women's stories. Cécile Chaminade's Obad was performed by Erica Sipes and provided by pianomusicsherote.com. Thanks to Jinx Derisay for her reading from My Grandmother's God by Carly Taylor, Christine Barrington for her reading from Losing Rosebud by Dr. Amy Azano, Catherine Bell for her readings from Teacher, One Who Loves by Wendy Kenner, and Great Expectations by Anonymous, and special thanks to Mom, also known as Mimi Wessling, for her readings from The Old Porch by Diane Blumberg and The Skirt by Maureen O'Leary. Links to these pieces can be found on babblery.com. Another thanks to Jinx for recording the intro and outro bumpers used in this episode. And thanks to you for listening to our stories. You've been listening to The Balbory. Subscribe to The Balbory on your favorite podcast platform or visit B-A-B-B-L-E-R-Y.com to access more episodes. The Babbleery is produced with support from KSQD Radio in Santa Cruz, California. 